cool spot right here. Yeah, it's not bad. Good morning, y'all. So, good morning, sir. So today, uh, I know I always say this today. That's always. Have you listened to any of them? Not yet. That's my intro all the time. Today. So today, I get to talk to a friend of mine. He's from the gym. Real laid back, cool dude. Um, I think he joined right around the time that I joined. Um, And what are you? What do you do? You're a landscaper. Landscape design construction. Landscape. Design and construction. My degrees in horticulture. Oh, we can explain to me what that is, but please welcome my friend Ryan Owens. That is correct. Yes, sir. All right, Ryan Owens. So, so what is it? What's your degree in? Horticulture. What is horticulture? Plants. Ah. Growing the plants. Interesting. Yes. Got okay. a did bachelor's degree in uh, from Texas A and M University in horticulture and a minor in agronomy, which is soil science. Interesting. And an emphasis in landscape design, so it all kind of plays into together. What got you interested in doing plants? You've always been fascinated by plants? When I was growing up down in Bay City, which is about 90 miles southwest of Houston down on the coast, my parents had about an acre on a creek there, and our next-door neighbor, that a guy that bought the house next door's name was Scott Evans, and Scott owned Scott and Company Landscape, and he was pretty much the one and only Scott, Scott like, and Company. Is like, that different from Scotts? I've heard of Scotts. That's, yeah, that's that's different. Oh, this okay, guy's okay. name was Scott Evans, and he had a local landscape maintenance, design, build, construction, nursery, kind of one-stop shop. He was kind of the only guy in town, and that was back in kind of the mid 80s late 80s early 90s and at that time down in that that town was a small town but there was um the south texas nuclear project and some other power plants and such around there so it was a small town but there were people there that had money and money to spend okay you know there was hospital there so pretty much anybody that lived there you know, that was middle to upper class, they were either doctors, lawyers, or they worked in those plant type facilities. They were engineers, but a lot of petroleum down there, petroleum engineers. And so he bought a house next door to us. And then, you know, we had this creek behind our house that ran into a series of rice canals because there was a, there's a big rice farming community. That was the other thing. It's a big farming community down there. And so, as a kid, that's where we played. Well, he built this big retaining wall and and put in this tropical landscape with banana trees and all kinds of crazy mm. plants. So it was just kind of a place to play and you know hang out whenever we were kids back there. And um, at an early age, I watched that process go on. So it just spiked my interest, uh-huh. and then. My parents, they remodeled that house and did a bunch of landscaping there, and he did all the landscaping. So I was just kind of exposed to it at an early age. So we moved up here to Bernie back in like 93 when I was in seventh grade. My parents built two houses, and you know I got to kind of watch the construction process with them. One of them went really well, the first one, you know, wasn't the greatest 
experience for them and at the end of the project my dad pretty much took over and like general contracted kind of had to fire the builder kind of deal finished himself uh, finished you know had it like oversaw the finish out of the project and then they had a pool built and there was a local guy around there that was just kind of an old hippie that was into native plants and he grew a lot of native plants and grew his own plants and he would you know he would he would have these plants at his property and he would stress them out intentionally by not watering Hmm. them versus a lot of these nurseries and growers they've got plant material going and they've got them on these big watering systems and they don't regulate how much water they put on there. So they're really just wasting a bunch of water, uh-huh. you know, and then that water goes back into these kind of re uh, type ponds. And then, you know, these, they, the water doesn't really get reused to water those plants again and gets a lot of chemical runoff and just a lot of nasty stuff that people don't realize kind of goes on in agriculture and horticulture you know horticulture you know is like agriculture you know agriculture and farming is growing plants and stuff for edible use horticulture is growing stuff for ornamental use trees Uh, shrubs that kind of deal and so that being said he would he would grow these plants and he would intentionally you know, water them kind of on an as-needed basis and stress them out. So when he put them in his landscapes, they were a little bit more adaptive. Interesting. Instead of being, you know, in a nursery situation where they were getting overwatered and then you go plant them in the ground and then they stress out and die because they're going from such a conditional climate type change. And so, you know, I watched back then, that's kind of when xeriscaping got popular which is you know a more arid form of landscape using water wisely and so he landscaped that house for us and I was a junior high kid 13 12 13 14 years old and just was interested in the process so when my parents built their next house that which was out on a couple of acres we um, decided you know what we're gonna do this ourselves. and so my mom and I went to the local Hill Country African Violet uh, nursery there and there was an older lady her name was Pat Ramaya and she she's got to be like mid 80s now and she's still kind of in the mix goes into works there Hmm. part time well we were walking around looking at plants and stuff and I was about I was 14 at the time in ninth grade you know about to turn 15 so it was kind of early spring I turned 15 in March and my birthday was in like two weeks and she just was like hey you you're interested in plants you want a job so I was like heck yeah so I started working there and you know my dad was always in sales and so that I guess I kind of had that sales Mm -hmm. gift from him and I was working there selling plants, doing all the stuff that goes on in a nursery from, you know, sweeping out greenhouses to watering plants to pruning plants to helping people and just started learning plants because I was interested in it. And so I learned all these plants and then from that point, 
you know, we had landscaped my parents' house, and my mom was a school teacher, so all her school teacher friends were like, oh, who did that? And, you know, so I started doing small projects from, I mean, I didn't even, I got my driver's license the day I turned 16, so prior to, you know, I was 15 years old, my grandfather had come up, come over and pick me up in his old Chevy three-quarter ton truck, and I'd get these projects, and he and I'd work together. And uh-huh. Then started doing that, and then ended up, you know, going off to A and M to get a horticulture landscape design degree. And in the summers, I would have projects lined up, come home and do projects. Christmas, spring break, you know, and I um, kind of just kind of where <laughs> where where the dart landed so when i graduated from a m in 2004 may of 2004 i moved back to bernie and you know my intention was just to start doing my own thing and i was approached by my material supplier and told me that there was a a uh, nursery landscape business over in bernie that was looking for somebody to kind of do what i do and so just went over there and the lady was working there and I introduced myself and I think I kind of caught her off guard just being young and my age her thinking uh-huh. what's this kid no so she set up an interview with me and um, it was kind of cool she sat down and at that point I'd already been designing and building landscapes for people and I had you know taken landscape design classes and this is before it was any of the computer stuff this was just right when compute the CAD stuff was getting popular so the way I learned we it was all hand-drawn color rendered prisma colors you know and um, I still prefer to do it that way to sit down and do it I'm just more of a hands-on more into the art of it than the technology you know a lot of these people come in and try to blow people away with some CAD design but they don't think or shoot any elevations, any grades, don't think about drainage. Everything's kind of just designed on a flat piece of paper, you know, and that works in Houston or places where we don't have elevation changes and grade and all that stuff to work with. And so it was pretty cool when I went in for the interview, she sat me down and she's like, all right, well, you know, here's a house and here's the needs and wants of the client and I want you to just sketch something up and explain to me why you're doing it this way. So I just sat down. Do me a favor. Pull that little, no, on the bill of your hat there's a hair. I could see that. It was driving me nuts. That's all I could stare at. (laughs) Okay, you're good, you're good. So I just sat down and like did a, basically a conceptual drawing because when, you know, when you start out with a landscape plan, You've got the house, you've got the area, and you basically sit down and kind of break down the different spaces of what you've got to work with. Okay. And then you kind of fine tune it from there. And so I just sat down and like whipped up this drawing and was like, I do this because of this and blah, you know. And that was the thing I did in my landscape design classes. You know, I had experience where a lot of the other students they were just kind of getting into it. So they would do a landscape design and it might look cool on paper, but it just really didn't make sense or the flow and the function of the materials didn't really 
work and we had this goofy 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 professor but he was really thinking like looking back he was really a pretty cool guy because he was more in tune with nature and native type stuff which is what I've kind of geared my business towards now is working with the land and working with late you know the right plants and the right grasses versus you know like out here where you live you know someone coming and go oh let's plant three 18 wheelers of St. Augustine grass that you got to water you know and you're on a well and then you're wasting all this water mm. so you know we I'd have these design projects and have to go in there and present them and you know some of the other students pictures may have been a little prettier a little better but when I'd sit down and go over, like, present my stuff to the class, I always blew them away on my reasoning behind yeah, what I was yeah. doing, you know, how everything flowed and functioned together and that kind of deal. And so when I moved back, I ran that business for that uh, Barclays Home and Ranch over in Bernie. And the guy that owned it was in oil and gas, and he basically – it was weird how it all connected because I also in high school did golf course management stuff out at Tapatio Springs and the assistant superintendent there was trying to do landscaping and I can't remember how it all played out or connected but the guy that I went and ran the company which was a side business more of a tax write-off loss for him at that point in time you know to to back up when I was in high school and before I'd gone off to college they kind of started a small growing operation out there and that was before they started doing landscaping so fast forward a few years they were growing plants and trying to do landscaping out of there and so I I was my last semester of college you know that spring they were sending me leads. I was setting up meetings, coming home on the weekends, selling projects, stacking up work for when I graduated. Uh. I started doing, I mean, so I was basically, I was going in and meeting with the clients. I was designing the work. I was selling the job. And then I was running the crew and executing and just doing what oh. I do now yeah. at 23 years old. Yeah, You know, and I did about, $750,000 worth of work for him with three guys working underneath me in like a nine month period. And then at that Christmas, the guy that owned the company, he owned an oil and gas company. This was just kind of a, basically a loss for him. I guess the landscape portion of it was floating the nursery, you know? And so he came, they came to me and was, what does that mean? Floating, the nursery? floating, basically the money I was making was keeping the, the nursery. other business afloat, ah, okay. you know? And they had the, the people that they had, the ladies they had working in there were part time. They didn't need to work their They were retired. So it was more of just a fun job mm -hmm. for them. And so they were going to shut down during Christmas during their slow time for two weeks because they didn't have any business and there was no point in paying anybody. So they came to me and said, Hey, um, you know, do you mind taking a two week unpaid vacation? And I'm going, okay, I'm right out of college, like unpaid vacation. Those, those two uh, things don't fit together. And I thought of myself, you know, I'll do that. But I've got some other people that have been asking me to do work. And if I'm allowed to go do 
these projects, yes, I'll agree to do that. Well, I did, and of course they got their feelings hurt uh -huh. because I was off making money and they weren't. And during that two weeks, I just kind of realized, like, I don't really need to answer to anyone if I can do this on my own. And just that was during, you know, kind of a construction building boom in the early 2000s. And it's kind of where God placed me and put me in. I just never looked back, man. And so you here. start your own thing? Yeah, I started my own thing back in, I guess that was... 2000 it was still 2004 so it had been basically the end of 04 like january of 05 so here we are 15 years later and never advertised i've never all word of you mouth. know everything's word of mouth and i've just decided to keep my company small in a sense of you know it's me and i've got a crew of four guys and an irrigation team and a tree arborist team that are kind of their own entity but we all work together and so instead of trying to run five crews and be you know some huge company that's having to advertise and you know have a bunch of salespeople running around and just you know basically putting out fires all the time because they have unhappy clients you know this goes back to watching my parents go through the building process and having a good and a bad experience. I just told myself, you know, let's stay small. Let's do things right. Let's not cut corners. You know, just build my business on honesty and integrity and doing things the right way and basically, you know, going in and being the first and last hand you shake. You know, not going in and selling a job and then passing it off yeah. to the next guy and the next guy and then you know, just taking phone calls because a client's not happy that the project's not going the way that you, you know, sold it to them yeah, as. Uh -huh. And so it's just what I do. And I, you know, a lot of people in this business will go in and, I mean, I run into this every day. You know, I met with some people yesterday and they've been talking to different landscape designer contractors and most people go in and they just, you know, they hear what the client wants, but they don't listen to them. And they don't mm. go in and, you know, when I walk into someone's house, like I'm in here right now, I'm paying attention to your granite, your cabinets, and kind of your style to where I carry that outside. Oh. And a lot of people, you know, they have in, and I'll say that early on in my career that I kind of had a specific style that I was geared around and, you know, if you look at a lot of these landscapes at a lot of these new homes around here, the landscaping in the house doesn't really match up, mm, you know. Okay. And so where I set myself apart is when I go in, I'm listening to the client. I'm paying attention to things that they don't realize. And I focus on drainage. You know, a lot of people come in and build a project and it seems like a good idea, but they're not paying attention to where the water's coming from. And where the water needs to go mm -hmm. and so you know we do a lot of what, what they call passive rainwater collection not active active rainwater collection is where you're taking water coming off of your roof and you're actively collecting it and then using it passive rainwater collection means you're taking the water coming from somewhere 
that could be coming through your property and causing erosion problems and causing you know drainage issues and actually using redirecting and channeling and slowing the water down by hardscaping and using rocks and gravel and creating different avenues for the water to go where it needs to but not just leaving the property and going and causing someone else a problem actually using it on mm -hmm. your property where it benefits your trees your landscape you know that kind of thing and so i just do what i do and that's fascinating you know, so you've been doing this for since you were how old so how many 14 years? i'll be 39 march 25 so years 25 years so when i go and tell people hey I've got 25 years experience. They look at me because they don't, you know, they think I'm only probably 30 years old. They're like, uh, you've been doing this since you're five? And I'm <laughs> like, no. <laughs> That's something I would have never guessed. Like you, be, the fact that you've been doing this for 25 years puts you at that level of like you're an expert when it comes to landscaping and understanding the way it works as far as how to set stuff up to use the water like you're saying to um, minimize erosion and all that. So many questions are going through my head right now. You know, using the right plants that the deer don't eat and mm -hmm. just all of that, so. So, okay. I'm gonna shut up now and I'm gonna let you <laughs> ask me questions. All right, my first question was, when you learned about like um, your friend had, who had the nursery, uh, your neighbor, um, rice, how is rice harvested? How is rice harvested? Yeah, how is it grown and harvested? I know it's grown in like, almost like swamp type well, basically, they go, you know, and that's this guy that I was talking about. He was a landscaper, but what I was saying is we had a creek behind our house yeah. that ran into these rice canals okay. that they used to water these fields. So basically, in that and they area. they rice? Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. How does it grow? Like, what type of plant so, is it? Um, it's just kind of a grassy-like plant, but it grows in water, uh -huh. just like you see over in Asia and China and stuff where they're growing yeah. rice, mm -hmm. you know, in that area, you're below sea level. And so you've got this black gumbo soil that holds moisture and you've got all these low lying fields and areas. And so what they, what they do is if there's, you know, say there's a rice farm. Okay. Well that are just a farm in general. Say somebody's got a 5,000 acre farm, you know, around here that when someone says a farm, you're thinking, you know, 50 acres and they got, you know, a farm is more, you know, sheep and goats or mm -hmm. a few cows, you know. You know, a farm around here is is a small version of a ranch, you know. <clears throat> so there, you know, you go drive through the country and you may drive for 10 miles and not see a single tree or maybe a you know a house out in the middle of a field that's got trees that they planted around it 30 years ago and then you can see for miles there may be 10,000 acres it's mm -hmm. just all farming and so what they'll do is they'll take the areas that are you know drain well and are kind of your higher ground and they'll grow cotton and corn and soybeans and grain sorghum and whatever else but then they're going to have these low-lying areas where all the water wants to run to and so what they do is they go in and they build these levees up and kind of even dig the stuff down and then they've got these rice canals and it rains so much there that those canals are catching water 
and they're able to move that water around and so what they do is they end up they plant those fields and then they flood them mm-hmm. you know and then a lot of times you'll have a rice field after they harvest the rice they'll farm crawfish in there because oh. because it holds water and the crawfish are just kind of native and natural there wow. so then they've got that they can take an area that's you know um that they can flood like that the rice has been harvested well the rice that's been harvested still has you know they lose some of that into the ground and then you've got the stems and the roots yeah. and whatnot so then you'll have your na- your natural crawfish population but then they can go in there and turn a bunch of small crawfish loose which they grow real fast and then they go in there and feed on that stuff that's left over yeah, yeah. So they're kind of dual purposing that. You How know? does it work? Like, is each grain of rice? Think of. Is it like? Is it grown? It's in a like... seed. So think of a grass. Okay. Think think of oats or think of rye grass. That's just a tall. Uh-huh. You know, it's not a perennial grass. It's more of an annual or biannual, meaning that it'll grow one season, and then it dies. But that seed can reseed itself. So that gra- that rice is growing, and that little grain of rice is basically has a hole, and that's what the seed that's inside. So we're, when we're eating rice, we're essentially eating the rice. You're eating seeds. a seed. The seed. Yes. Ah. Yes. Okay. So they go in, and you know they flood those fields, and it grows, and then they drain them, and then they let it dry out, and then you'll see this rice is, you know just kind of like when they do uh, winter wheat you know winter wheat's a grass and it grows and it seeds and then it turns brown and they go in and they have machines that Uh, combines that harvest it so once they drain those fields then the stuff is left there and it turns you know brown and dries out and they take equipment in there and they gotcha cut it like that and then they've got these big rice gins that they take that stuff to and then they hole you know hold the rice and that kind of thing okay um, you mentioned bananas bananas and they grew bananas there too correct well the guy just had banana trees planted behind his house for like a, just to eat. just for no just for a tropical uh-huh. just for plant just you get the bananas off of them oh yeah so i've heard that bananas uh banana plants they only grow once and you have to chop it down and then it'll grow again. so when it would freeze true? they would cut them to the ground and then they would regrow every year will will a banana tree grow multiple bunches or no like will yeah. it grow multiple oh, yeah. bunches if you leave the tree standing i've heard that it only grows like basically one set of bananas maybe not one bunch but multiple bunches and then you have to cut it down so it can grow a new one. Is that correct? Well, what happens is, yes, that is true. But because they're the type of plant that it is, they, that banana, that plant portion each year is going to regenerate new growth. Okay. Uh-huh. So if you're in a tropical environment where it never freezes, the banana trees don't freeze and they just get bigger and bigger but in that environment where it freezes they freeze to the ground every year yeah and then you just cut them to the ground and they regrow but there's different varieties of banana tree plants so those aren't those type are more of an ornamental uh horticulture like landscape variety that they use to plant for accent to give you a tropical mm. look that's not the actual variety that they're growing for 
food cultivation. Oh, okay, okay. But you can eat the bananas that are off of them. So pretty I, good? Yeah, so eh, kind of. Not as good as No, that. no, 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 not as good. They got uh -huh. a different texture. They're more like a, almost more like a plantain. Uh-huh. So they'd be better if you cooked with them. But I remember he had one planted kind of next to our fence, and that's where my dad had the his barbecue pit. And I always remember every year that it would get, you know, because a banana is basically the tree flowers, yeah, and the banana is the fruit that has the seed inside of it. So the banana tree would always like be next to the fence, and there'd always be some bananas kind of hanging over and. You know, you're a kid, you're like, oh, cool, bananas, let's uh -huh. eat them, you know. Um, they turn yellow and be a little banana. I freaking love bananas. Yeah. So. Okay, so um, I've heard, and I believe, when you're growing, like, avocados, uh -huh. I'm, I'm fascinated by plants. Like, I know that there's, like, a male plant, a female plant. Mm -hmm. So when you're growing avocados, I've heard that it's best to grow them in pairs. Yes, you got to have so they can pollinate each what other. What is the reason? Like, will, will, if you only have one avocado tree, will no fruit be bared from that avocado tree? I could, I don't know the answer to that question. Mm. You know, citrus, a lot of times citrus, if you don't have other citrus to pollinate, but avocado, I don't have much experience with okay. that. Um, I think avocados are actually kind of a self pollinator basically you're just having to get the female plant because that's the one that's going to produce the fruit uh -huh. so i guess the best example i can give you is around here you know if you if we go out and walk through the woods and we start looking at cedar trees this time of year there's going to be a cedar tree that's covered in berries and there's some that aren't covered in berries. You got male and female plants. Wow. Yes. So you could tell which one's male and which yes. one is male, which one's female. Female yes. is Has the berries. berries yeah. Whoa. Are those berries edible? Yes, you can eat cedar berries. Are you serious? Because yeah. yeah. if I go out there. Yeah, we can go out there right now. And, and go eat some. Yeah. I better not die if I No, die. they actually say like an old uh, remedy to get rid of this cedar stuff that oh. we get is you're supposed to eat so many cedar berries over a period of time which because you're naturally taking in the pollen yes. right and your body adapts yes. to it yeah uh, okay all right next time i go out i'm gonna go find a, a cedar tree and try to get some berries yep so what what fruits grow here in texas i do much fruits as grow far here? as natural yeah, growing naturally. um that you know of I mean, there's wild plums and stuff in East Texas. and I mean, mm. dewberries and blackberries. Um, but yeah, most, most, so most fruit trees, okay. Here, I'll give you a good example. All right. Say you take that orange over there and you pull the seed out of that orange. All right. And you go plant that seed in the ground and it comes up. And that orange fruits, that fruit on there. It's going to be a sour orange. It's not going to be sweet because they graft, meaning they take one type of rootstock and they graft another type onto that. What does that mean? That means that, so basically you take the rootstock system. Okay. You know, down like here. As it's growing. You, well, before it grows, like all pecan now there's native native pecan trees aren't grafted but when you see these ones that are 
you know, they're growing for production. Yeah, in fields. They graph it, graft it. Just like all the produce and all the stuff that we have has been um, cultivated over the years to where they do different breeding techniques, okay? So they've bred stuff to produce certain ways. So they take that root stock and they go and take another portion of it and they it'd be like it'd be like me cutting my finger off and going and getting a finger of somebody else while it's still alive and this is fresh enough and putting them together and it and it eventually grows, grows back to, yes or i mean attaches yes yes so they do that with the roots they do that with what is what is the reasoning for that well what a lot of times a certain root stock of a certain plant and they graft all kinds of different plants roses are grafted that root stock will grow in that certain environment in that soil but they want something that's you know has a different flavor or taste ah. yeah so you know so what do they do they just cut the root and put a new root next to it or they how do they No, they take it? the root stock and then they take for instance grapes are grafted okay so if you had grape rootstock and pretend that that this little deal you have here uh -huh. is a floral arrangement you would take this part out here and you cut it off He's and pointing you would, to the stem and you uh -huh. would put that stem to that rootstock and then and and there's you, different how do you attach it how do they different, attach it well, let's look it up man because it's been a while since <laughs> we, we went from landscaping to to grow in Dude, I'm just, trees. No, I'm but I can answer. About all plants, man. So let's look up grafting. Wait, so real quick. Pecan trees. You're saying that um, the the orange wouldn't be sweet; it would be sour. It would be sour. Why? What is the reason? Okay, for that? I, that's like if this is a sweet orange, how come the new orange, the off breed, or I mean the offspring, because uh because all of those are grown from a sour orange rootstock, if that makes sense. So a sour orange gives birth to so, sweet oranges? So uh, or a I'll, give you a pro I'll give you a prime example, okay? Working out here in Mystic Shores uh, by Canyon Lake, and there's, I've noticed driving by a house that there's an orange tree growing right now, and it's loaded with all these beautiful oranges. And you wonder, why is the person not picking them picking them uh-huh because they're sour and another example this little restaurant that i found up in blanco this josie's cafe that i love so much the other day i went in there and the lady's like oh yeah we've got you know fresh lemons for your tea and she pulls one out and cuts it up and i politely told her i was like you know because of the flavor of it what she's like it doesn't really taste like a lemon but it's a lemon. It's a sour orange. Somebody customer brought in sour oranges and they're uh. using them. You know, so he's looking up the ah, I see, and they wrap it. With yeah. Wax. So there's different techniques on how you okay. graft stuff. Okay. Which I actually had to do in one of my horticulture labs back uh. at A and M. Uh, peach trees, you know. They've got certain tools for grafting. I mean, I'm sure. I see. I see. I'm sure in the last 15 years since I did how to graft pecan trees. So when you were um, 
learning about this horticulture? Are you learning? Let's let's check this out. Pecan. Not a pecan. It's a pecan. Pecans taste better than pecans. You know that, right? Woodstock, that's not a concert. Just below where the cutting takes place. Then peel back the cut part of the wood. Cut the exposed piece of wood out of the peeled layers. And then they put the new one in there and wrap it. Okay, that makes sense. Got it. So this will throw you for a loop. You can take a peach tree and you can graft plums and other things on there. So they've had, they have trees that you can buy that once you plant it, it produces peaches, plums, like multiple on fruits the on the same tree. tree. Yeah, no so let's check. Way. So let's see if we can. Let's see. Okay, so what do you know about. We can look it up later, but All right. what do you? Because I, mean, I got questions. What do you know about um, the? So I've heard or I've listened to a podcast. It's called um, "From Tree to Shining Tree." It's by a Radio Lab. You ever heard of it? No. There's a podcast called Radio Lab, and they talk about mycelium and right. the networks um, of these this white rooting system under plants and under trees, and that trees communicate with each other. You know anything about that? And they share nutrients. Okay, well the best the best scenario I can give you for that are like these live oak trees. Okay. A lot of these live oak trees or root systems are connected. Okay. They're huge, yeah. Yeah. So you've heard of oak wilt, which is a fungus disease that kills oak trees. Okay. You know, it's kind of a a myth basically that the oak wilt is a fungal mat. That produce that's on the trunk or base of the tree, and then what happens is, you know, if you prune an oak tree the wrong time of year, that open wound, there are these beetles that can go and spread the oak wilt. But that's not the primary source of how it's spread. The primary source is spread through the root system. So oh. if you go to these areas around here that have oak wilt and you see a bunch of dead trees. As the years go on, that's spreading through the roots because those oh. roots are all connected. Yeah, now, it may yeah, be yeah. its own tree, but they're all those. So if you go to Ber Bernie, over to Bernie, for example, there's some certain areas in Bernie. Um, Chavanaugh Park, there's some different areas in San Antonio that have oak wilt. And, you know, you can just kind of see it progress each year. Mm. And there's a guy in Bernie, his name's, 
Kevin Belter, he's uh goes by the tree cowboy. He's like an expert in arbor care, trimming trees. He's kind of the if I've got a client that thinks they have oak wilt on their property or has any kind of scare towards that, I call Kevin, bring him over, let him look and assess their trees. And he actually, you know, they can treat these trees like injecting them for oak wilt. Well, the problem is a lot of these companies that are selling this oak wilt treatment, they'll go to someone and, you know, your average client or average person that doesn't really know about it, they get freak out about oak wilt and they're like, oh man, well, I'm, I'm going to treat my trees so they don't get it. Well, you can treat your trees till you're blue in the face, but if you don't do it at the right time, there's kind of a time window of when that oak wilt's coming towards that tree of when you can treat it and it being effective. Mm -hmm. So this dude, he kind of keeps his eyes peeled and, you know, rides around these different areas and no knows when you know someone needs to treat their trees and he'll go knock on their door and be like hey you know these trees are you know if you put an insurance value on you take a 150 year old oak tree that's you know almost you know bigger around than the island here in your kitchen four foot ish three, i mean four foot. Ten, six feet across you know this tree's maybe 300 years old well if you put an insurance value on replacing that tree that tree's worth a hundred grand oh shit! yeah so would you rather spend five thousand dollars treating that tree and keeping it alive yeah yeah yeah. or would you rather spend five thousand dollars and having to come in and remove it because it's dead yeah and then you lose a 300 year old tree uh -huh. and then what you replace it with some 50, 45, 100-gallon tree that's, you know, six-inch diameter, and it's going to gotcha. take it another 300 years to get that big. So, Is it is it true that in plants, or I mean in, in trunks, uh, the outside is where the water is running? So if you cut like a ring around the outside of a tree, it'll die? I've heard that okay, too. Okay, so that's what you call the cambium layer. The water's running through the inside, okay? okay. You've got dicots and you've got monocots. A monocot, a banana tree is a monocot. Grasses are a monocot. Can you give me one second? Uh-huh. Let, let me stop this because my dog, hold on. All right, back. Okay, so explain to me, you said there's a monocot and a dicot. And you were asking about how the water's the water transferred. Mm -hmm. A monocot differ from dicots in four distinct structural features, leaves, stems, roots, and flowers. But the difference start from the vet very beginning of the plant's life cycle, the seed. Within the seed lies the plant's embryo, whereas monocots have one cotyledon, one vein, and dicots have two. Okay. Mono and di. So, um, if you cut through that cambium layer of a tree, uh -huh. yes, they can die, but if you, it's not the bark. You know, the bark's kind of what protects that. It has to be a little that. deeper then. Yes. So, the best example I could give you is in a landscape situation, um, at A&M, the, the Aggie term for it is called the weed eater blight, okay? Meaning that when someone's weed eating around a tree, every time they do it, they're hitting that bark. They're knocking oh. that bark off, and they break into that layer. Mm. And then over time, it's called, or another uh, 
thing. It's called tree girdling. Okay. So, for instance, someone goes out and plants a new tree, and they stake that tree out, okay, to keep it from blowing over, and they don't pay attention that once the tree's established that they take that away. Well, the right way to do it is using some sort of soft-type rope material. There's certain things that they make for, you know, doing that for a tree. Well, in old practice, people would take an old garden hose, because that's soft, run a wire through it, and use that to stake the tree down. Well, then they would, you know, not pay attention and not take care of their tree properly, and in time, that uh, the water hose uh, okay. disintegrates yeah. and the tree starts growing and then it grows into that wire and that wire basically Suffocates just chokes it, it. yes ah. but trees are pretty resilient and so you know sometimes you'll go and along an old fence row that has an old fence yeah. on mm -hmm. it and say a hackberry tree you know grows up in between there well you'll see a tree with wire growing through it yeah you know, because, you know, it was just in the right spot to where that just happened. Now, wow. if it's wrapped around the tree, then a lot of times it'll kill it. Now, <coughs> I was talking to a kid who was going to UTSA and he was studying um, environmental biology. Okay. And he was telling me about seed banks. Okay. In East Texas. Okay. Or no, excuse me, West Texas. And what they did was it was basically desert land and they... They dug a well to pump water and flood that desert land. And from that, you had plants growing. Yes. Where it was just desert. Mm -hmm. So is it like everywhere we look, there are There's seed, a seed bank. bank? Yes. Deep, deep. Yes. Correct? Yes. So, so a good example of that is because what happens is, you know, over the years, organic matter's falling, uh -huh. it's decomposing, and it's creating what? is your topsoil. It's that topsoil layer. And then you've got your subsoil. So, you know, in droughts and different, just different environmental situations that happen over the years. For instance, this year, the oak trees. If you pay attention, this is the biggest acorn crop I've ever seen in my whole life, okay? I can go outside right now and find acorns almost in March that are still viable, like deer or hogs or something would want to eat them. Usually those acorns quit falling back in November, you know, and then they're done. And so, I don't know, it, I, I couldn't, I'd have to look up the exact information, but basically, you know, that tree, that tree kind of knows from what's happened in the past few years, you know, say we get a drought and then that tree stresses out and then we get a really wet year you know the residual effects of that are that tree going okay I've got to really produce more than oh. I ever have to try to replenish the population kind of wow. deal so it all and I I'm not going to get scientific I'm just going to talk kind of in layman's yeah, yeah. terms or explain it that's you know the best way I can explain it so this year the oak trees for whatever reason from a drought that we had two summers ago that tree's telling itself hey we got to produce as much as we can ah. for down the road so you'll get you know native grasses native plants certain things that they'll have a year where they produce a lot of seed and then those seeds 
fall on the ground, different, you know, grasses or different things. And then we go through a series of drought and say you've got, say you've got a grass that's right here in this location. Okay. And then we have a really dry year and those seeds blow over into a low spot. And then we get a wet year and erosion causes soil from somewhere else to go on top of those seeds, uh-huh. you know, and you get one rain like that and it gets covered up, but these, you stay in a drought, all right? So those seeds never germinate. Then you get another big rain that puts more material on top of there. Those seeds are basically being protected in the soil, uh-huh. all right? Now, what will cause them in time to germinate is when the ground kind of moves and shifts, it's scarifying that seed coat, then you get the right conditions for the seed to grow. Wow. Well, if you got in a five year drought period of some nature and you know, over time those seeds were stuck down in the soil and then layers yeah. build upon layers and they just kind of sit there. And so then someone comes in to, you know, do some sort of construction project and goes in and excavates and pulls that topsoil layer out, gets down in the subsoil where the seed bank is, and they disturb that, okay, and then those seeds get disturbed and they, um, where they can germinate, and then we get rain. That's why a lot of times if you go out and you excavate something and get down in that seed bank and then we get a bunch of rain, you see all these weeds and all this uh-huh. stuff popping up. So that's kind of how oh. that works. Why does a seed have to dry up before you like you plant it? Does it have to work like that? Yeah, it has well, to. It's just the, the it's their the process that it has to go through to. Because like if you plant a, a seed from like a lemon, it won't grow. But you have to dry it out in the sun and then plant it. No, not necessarily. It's just not going to grow from that when it's moist mm. going back to the whole seed bank thing that goes in there and it and it gets covered Dry up and it dries right. up and then yeah eventually uh, okay. you know so a lot of different like peach trees peach seeds for example they've got to go through a certain cold heart like cold period so when i was in college at a&m i worked on campus my little part-time job I had was with the peach research. So we would have to take these peach seeds and we'd have to crack them with this tool and get that outer hard shell off of there. And so a peach seed, when you eat a peach, it's got that hard shell to it. Well, you dry that out and you cut that and crack it open and the seed that's in there looks like an almond. Okay, so think about an almond having or any of those things. And so then we would take all these peach seeds and we'd have to put them in these refrigerated deals for a certain amount of time and then take them out and then plant them. Ah, I see. So. Have you ever seen, have you ever been to like the Redwoods, Sequoias? No, I haven't. I need to, that's something I'd like to. I feel like you'd be fascinated oh, by that Oh, I would stuff. be completely fascinated by that. Those trees are huge. They're huge and their root systems are not very deep under the soil. Really? But they're all kind of connected like you were talking uh-huh. about. So. If you've got a redwood forest and you went in and, you know, they tried to, they started, say you had 50 acres of redwood trees okay. and you went in and you That's started. About five or six trees <laughs> you know, with how big yeah. they are. Oh yeah. So <laughs> say you've got 25 red, uh, 
redwood. redwood trees in an area and you went in and you cut 20 of them down and you left five of them standing well eventually they're going to fall over because they're all connected and they depend on each other to mm, to, to keep from that standing. because their root system is so small uh, so they are they are the what well, you're talking about the mycelium and yeah, different uh-huh. stuff they are kind of communicating with each other you know i've heard that plants change their flavor profile so like they communicate so like there was they did this um they did this experiment where they had i forgot what type of plant it was but they had like these rabbits come in and they they were eating the plants and uh plants further away had changed their flavor profile to protect themselves from yes yeah that's a natural occurrence that plants will just like some of these deer resistant plants those plants produce a certain taste or smell to protect themselves so that the animals don't go in and completely wipe them out yeah it's kind of like it makes you think like we think plants are just plants but there's something to them where i feel like they have their own intelligence yeah they do very very intelligent um what is um like what 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 is something that fascinates you most about plants something that you can like just a random interesting thing that you can throw at me they're all different like every plant's different Uh you know and you may have two trees of the same species but if you went out and really looked at them yeah if you looked at the bark and you look at the leaves like they're different they're like we are you know Uh i mean it's just okay what about uh you know much about house plants uh, a little bit enough to be dangerous <laughs> do you believe that there are really because like you know this idea that like this house plant will help purify your air absolutely believe it 100 well yeah i mean that's it's just i mean outside those plants are cleaning the air yeah so you go but, in, like you really think like and i'm ignorant right i, I don't know but if yeah if it's you taking the carbon monoxide or however it works it's taking whatever's in the air and using that to photosynthesize and then create so you believe like a like a, a snake plant you know a snake plant uh-huh. like two or three snake plants would it really make a difference if i had them in my house yeah i mean on a molecular yeah, molecular level i mean if you tried to like do some kind of testing i'm sure you would be able to see that you know uh-huh. think about it's just like going to the city and there aren't a bunch of plants it's all concrete and buildings and then the cars are putting off all this that's why the the air's not clean Mm -hmm. that's why you can't see the stars at night because that buildups there in the atmosphere it's so crazy because like when you go to the mountains or something the air you literally breathe in and you're like wow this is crisp yeah it's from the plants so different yeah so you okay Plant specialist. Anybody? Ask me some landscaping questions, though, man. <laughs> That's my jam. <laughs> what, are, what are the go-to plants? Like oak trees obviously are popular, but what other plants are popular as far as landscaping goes? As or like as... what's your style? You like the Indian. What is, what is that? The Native American you were saying? The oh, native. Native, native adaptive plants. So what, so what kind of plants? That are... means, I mean, there's all different. I mean, I could sit here and spout off and confuse you with all kinds of different names and varieties but basically you know i like to work with plants that grow natively Uh and use those in the landscape or plants that are native adaptive meaning they're native somewhere else that has the same type 
climate or microclimate as we do. So they're a, they're a native adaptive plant. They don't grow native here, but they adapt well to our soil type, our climate, our you know yeah. the amount of rainfall that we get. Uh-huh. So um, that makes sense. We've talked about plants a lot. I want to talk about hunting. Well, I, come on now. That's <laughs> I was going to say. When are we going to talk about hunting? When did you get into hunting? You've always been. When a I was three years old, my dad started dragging me into deer blind. When did you shoot your first deer? When I was, well, I killed a, a javelina when I was like five with a twenty-two. But I killed my first deer, and I think I was six or seven years old. Uh-huh. My, uh huh. My, where my mom lives now, over at Medina Lake, it was really. I mean, it's still undeveloped there but it, back then it was you know there was nothing around there and so the deer would pass through and we'd feed them kind of behind there to kind of get them on the property it was just on a little three acre place and I remember um, I remember my dad we had an old it was an old it was a table but it was like one of those spool, wooden spools that you see like yeah. they mm-hmm. big wire and stuff yep. comes on well my grandfather was in the oil and gas and so he somehow he got these wooden uh, spool things and they had them painted as a table where we had a like when you go to the rifle range they've got these rests and vices that you put yep. put them in to kind of steady yourself so I remember being a little kid and you know setting that thing up to just get the perfect eth- ethical shot to where I didn't just shoot and wound the deer and shot a doe off of the off the back porch of the house you know um and then even at that time i mean we would there was a lot of squirrels there and i would you know had a pellet gun and i'd go hunt squirrels well my grandfather he didn't want me to just be a kid out killing stuff for the heck of it so he would teach me how to skin them and we would Ah. make squirrel and dumplings and fried squirrel and stuff like that Uh and there was a lot of white winged doves around there and I would shoot those with my pellet gun and you know grill them or go catch perch and bass out of the lake and we'd have these little wild game game fries but my dad man I was just blessed that my dad took me my dad loved to hunt and fish and my grandfather loved to hunt and fish and so that's just what we did I didn't play sports I hunt like I don't you know, I hear all the guys at the box talking about football and fantasy football and all these teams and all this different stuff, and that doesn't even—it's not even on my radar. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll sit down and watch an A and M game or something if I have to, but you know, I'd rather go sit outside and go watch the birds fly around and oh, absolutely, you know, go hunt down some wild pig and shoot it with my bow. You know. So when did you get into bow hunting? Oh man. My dad, I remember my dad, you know, he was always a rifle hunter and it was a place that we hunted and the guy, he really, really, really wanted my dad to harvest a deer with a bow. And so I remember, you know, being a kid and going into this archery shop in Houston way back when I had to have been like seven or eight, nine years old. And um, I remember my dad getting set up. He had an old high country Excalibur was the bow and I mean that thing must have weighed like 10 pounds they were so heavy back then and went in there got it was a recurve no it was a compound uh-huh. um, that's when compounds were really getting popular and uh, 
I remember going in and him getting set up, and it's just like anything. You get fitted for it, and he got back then, you know, most guys, there weren't many pro shops, and there weren't people weren't getting fitted for bows. They were going and buying something off the shelf at, you know, Sears or whoever sold just your basic mm. old bear bow. They weren't, the draw length wasn't right. They were shooting with fingers. Yeah. The bows weren't tuned. They weren't accurate. So most people didn't have confidence in bow hunting because uh, they didn't have uh, the right equipment and it wasn't fitted to them. Well, he went and got it fitted. And um, I remember every day he'd come home from work and we'd go out in the backyard and he had this 3D deer target and he'd sit back at, 20 30 and 40 yards and just stack arrows in there so i was just completely eaten up with that and then went back to that same bow shop and i'm a young kid and he gets me a, a this small hoyt compound bow and gets it fitted to me and then at that point when is when we moved up to this area and there was a couple of years that with work and job changes and stuff and you know not having a place to hunt we you know hunted a little bit but not like we had done you know prior to that and then about the time i was i remember both of our bows were like in the attic in their cases kind of deal i was like dad we got to get these things out and start doing this again and so i got that old bow out and took it to the archery shop got it fitted for me and started hunting again i was probably about 15 and you know i was it's kind of on the borderline about growing that bow and a lot of the technology had changed and so i remember that christmas i was like 15 years old 16 and he bought me a you know the real deal type thing took me into the archery shop it was back when it was the old viking archery which it's like the viking at canyon lake um and so what a lot of people don't know about the guy that they go, well, how's this guy at Canyon Lake have this fancy archery shop and all this stuff and make any money? Well, he actually came out with the patent on the trigger sear release. So every trigger sear release, I think I have one. you know, that's made, he's got the patent on it. So everyone that's sold, he gets like $10 a piece. So he's uh. a, he's a multi-millionaire, you know? Yeah. Um, and they made Viking bows, were competition bows back then. But my dad took me in and, you know, had me fitted for a bow and we got it. And then I got it for Christmas and just started hunting with it. I was hooked and we had one of his customers that was over here in Blanco, had a couple hundred acres over off Crabapple Road and gave us access to hunt it. So it, you know, I had a driver's license and a truck, and I it's just all trial and error, learning from experience, going over there and sitting and not being able to be still and spooking the deer off and not playing the wind right and not knowing how to set up. So it was like that first, I remember that first year, you know, I could go out the backyard and just pound arrows in the target and thinking, this is going to be easy. <laughs> And I'll never forget, man, sitting, it was opening morning of bow season, and actually, wow, how old are you? I was probably 16 or 17 by that time. I remember the year before, when I was, before I got the new bow and I was hunting with the old one, and this was before, you know, the fiber optic sight, so when it would be low light conditions, you'd draw back, wouldn't be, like, staring at a blank page, and uh -huh. we had another place to hunt out by comfort some people gave us access to and there were two big old mature 
bucks that the guy had been feeding behind his house. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be easy. So I go <laughs> set up a ground blind with a cattle panel. And there's some old cattle panels just kind of laying there. So we just kind of made shift a blind and we go in there and sit behind it. Well, being a kid and being impatient, it's like you think you're just going to throw out some feed or something. The deer's going to come in. And I'll never forget the first time I went and hunted you know, getting out of the blind early because I got impatient because nothing came in. And I get out of the blind and I come out and see one of those big bucks just kind of standing there on the edge of the field. And he runs off. And then I remember another time my dad going with me. And um, and I the way I had the blind set up with, with this cattle panel, you know, my idea was to be sitting down. But then when the deer came in, stand I was going to stand up and shoot. And I'll never forget this nice buck coming in. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I stand up and the deer's standing there looking at me. And I draw the bow back and I don't have fiber optic pins. So I'm just staring at, you know, space and pull the trigger and the arrow flies over its back. And <laughs> from that point, you know, I was hooked. And then that next year when we started hunting out here in Blanco and I remember having a tripod set up. And open a morning of bow season, I'm just, by that point, I realize I'm just perfectly still and quiet. And the feeder goes off, and I hear, you know, stuff kind of walking behind me. And I'm just, you know, don't move, don't move. And this nice group of, this group of bucks come in, and they're like 15 yards down there. And I'm going, my heart's just... Pumping out of my chest, and at that point, that's when I'm hooked, you know, because I've been killing deer with a gun for however long, and uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't get any excitement out of it anymore. And so, we, I'm sitting there, that deer has no clue I'm there, and um, I get drawn back. And before I get anchored, before I get everything lined up, I mean, my figure, finger hits a trigger, the arrow's gone, and shoots right over its back. It's like. <laughs> You know, and so at that point, I just educated those deer to know that when you they know, came in there, yeah. something was going to be wrong. And um, I remember in that year, I remember there being a lot of acorns. So that early in the season, the acorns hadn't started falling. So the deer were coming in. Well, then they started falling. You didn't see much. And um, I thought, man, you know, I we- got this tripod right here and. They're coming in. This isn't like, I don't have the best cover. I'm going to move it. So I moved it by myself behind this tree to where I could sit. And, you know, I'm thinking, because the second time I had sat in that same spot, the deer knew I was there. So I'm like, well, I got to move this thing. I got to get, you know, and at that point, my dad was a bow hunter, but he wasn't like, he didn't have that much experience to be thinking about the wind and all that. Mm -hmm. So coincidentally, I moved the tripod and got the wind right. And, you know, I go, I go in there to, we both, we go out and he's got his spot down the creek and I have mine and I'll never forget, you know, the acorns were falling and I didn't even think about it at that point, but we weren't seeing, I wasn't seeing much. And what, what, what is the acorns falling? Stop the deer from coming? Cause they're eating the acorns. They want to eat acorns. Oh, so they not, don't care for the corn. They don't care for the corn. Oh, so see, like this year we had so many acorns. I know guys like talking to guys that didn't even see or kill anything. Ah, you know? I see. And I remember sitting there and um, this little four point buck, he comes lumbering through, and I'm like, 
I didn't care. I just wanted to get one, you know. I wanted the meat. And um, I remember him coming in and just the stars aligning. It stops. <laughs> I shoot. Perfect shot. Goes over and falls over. And um, I think maybe I'd shot like a doe. A doe, right? Like a week or so before that. And I remember going and finding that buck. And I was just so pumped and so excited. And this little four-point four <laughs> buck, you know. And I couldn't stand it. I'm like, I couldn't... I couldn't even st- stand to be in that spot. I had to just go move around. So I just start walking down the road to where my dad would be coming from if he were to come pick me up. And I'll never forget, you know, I'm all pumped and they can tell I got something and they come pulling up and, you know, my dad's all smiles. He's like, Did you get one? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, come look in the back of the truck. He's got this freaking Huge. toad uh-huh. eight pointer. Uh-huh. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, well, I got one, but so we get the, we got this picture, and he's got this big buck, and I got my little four pointer. But I was just a cool. That's rad. Moment. I mean, you were young. Yeah. So that was your third season out. That was my second season out, <clears throat> and the first two, it was just perfect. It worked out, and then after that, man, I was got buck fever so bad that uh. I call it the learning curve of bow hunting, and it's basically being able to just keep everything under control and hold it yeah. together and be able to get drawn back and anchored and just go through that shot process how know? many bucks would you say you've killed via bow i don't know more I than pro- you can count i probably killed bucks does pigs i probably killed 50 animals with a bow and so so, so now we'll go we'll go to the next you know i've kind of taken it to the next level you know a lot of You'll be in an archery shop and someone will be buying their kid a bow and they're getting them a recurve and they're going, all right, when you get really good, we'll get you a compound. Well, that's reverse. Because recurve is much harder, huh? Re- yeah. It's like I always tease these guys that shoot compounds. I'm like, when are you going to kick your training wheels off and start <laughs> shooting a real bow, you know, that you got to hold back? So about, I guess in college, we there was a this power plant late around there that had all these tilapia in it and so i'd heard about that and i had a john boat i inherited from my grandfather and started going out there and with a compound it's hard because the fish are moving around and you got to draw an anchor well i had an old recurve bow and i set it up with a fishing reel started shooting fish so that's what kind of got my instinctive shooting going Mm. and um the guy I worked for at the golf course, I mentioned that. He was a traditional bow hunter, and so he kind of exposed me and got me into hunting, shooting a traditional bow. And I got I bought a bow from him that he sold to me because it was too heavy for him to pull back. It was a 60-pound Bob Lee, and, man, I practiced and practiced. And I got to where I could shoot pretty dang good, man, just teaching myself on my own. I could hit a softball at, like, 30 yards with that thing, and... Then I went off to college, and I still had that bow, but we were into the compounds because that's what was cool and progressing and easier. And so I had that Bob Lee bow, but I ended up selling it because it was too heavy, and I wasn't using it, which I wish I would have kept kept it. But, you know, we started shooting fish and hunting deer with a compound, and 
then I graduated college and man hunting was my passion so I always had a hunting lease and before I had was married and had kids I mean during hunting season it was every week and I was gone uh-huh. and I pretty much from the time I was 16 on I exclusively bow hunted I mean I've hunt, killed deer with a rifle when I got invited and it was going yeah using it as a management tool because you've got to kill deer but I mean, I had a hunting lease in Junction for four years, and I never even took a rifle out there. And everybody else rifle hunted. And yeah. I killed the biggest deer ever killed on that place with my bow. And so about three or four years ago, I was, you know, just kind of got the traditional bug again. I had a, a Palmer recurve bow, and it's 60 inches long, which meaning the shorter your draw length, you can shoot a shorter bow, but the longer you're drawing, you need a longer bow because of the string angle and how the limbs stack up. And so started doing my research and called this guy, Mike Palmer, that builds custom bows. He actually built builds one called a Super Slam, which a lot of guys that bow hunt and know who Fred Eichler is. He killed, he killed the American Super Slam, which means you kill every species of North American big game with a bow. He's done the Super Slam with a recurve bow. Now Hoyt, if you look, he's uh, Hoyt sponsors him, so he shoots a Hoyt Satori or something like that. But I called this guy Mike Palmer up. That had I had a bow that I'd bought from a friend that he had made, but it was one that was too short, and I had actually killed. You know, at the end of the hunting season, on these leases I would have, I'd get that thing out and start practicing with it and try to kill a doe. And I'll never forget, it was the last weekend of the season, and I had killed my trophy and management deer off of this ranch. But the way it worked, each hunter was allotted a certain amount of deer. Well, there were guys that hadn't <clears throat> killed their coal buck or management buck, and I had gone... I'd been sitting in my spot, and man, I had this, it was the perfect deer to kill. I had the recurve bow, but I didn't have the green light because I had taken my quota. But I was like, man, this, you know, and it was just here to the fireplace, just like chip shot. Got back to camp, and one of the guys there, it was a Saturday, and he's like, man, I'm done, I'm out, going back to Houston. If you want to have my cold buck, you can have it. So I'm like, sweet. (laughs) <laughs> you know, Sunday morning, last time of the season, I go climbing there and I'm just hoping this thing shows back up and it doesn't. And I'm hunting on a 20,000 acre ranch in Brackettville and it's like 15 or 12 miles from the camp to my spot because I was one of the last guys that got on the lease. So I had the furthest spot on the ranch, but I didn't care because that's where there was less activity. Uh-huh. And they raised the rancher raise sheep and goats and well he would go through with his truck and feed cotton seed and corn along the road so it would attract the deer along the roads and i'd got done hunting and gotten in my polaris ranger and i'm headed back and i'm kind of bummed because i really wanted to get an opportunity at something and i'm cruising along and there's a couple fat does standing in the road and they just kind of run off and i'm like went one runs this way and the wind's blowing in my face and I'm thinking well they're not going to go very far yeah. so I just stopped and I didn't turn it off because I left it on there used to vehicles and that kind of stuff so 
I, I left it on thinking that's going to kind of cover my noise and the wind was blowing just right and the brush was about you know six or eight feet tall so I just kind of go easing through the brush and there's this doe just big old fat doe just standing there and I'm like 15 yards and I'm like sweet pick a spot draw back release and that arrow just right through the heart and I watch her I see her like bounce off and flop up so I go and I drag her out and load you know field dress her out there and load her up and go back to camp and it's like I'm just pumped dude sticking a string you know and I got this doe in the back of the truck and this everybody else is rifle hunting and yeah yeah and you got I've got it with a dang recurve and then another time I killed a doe like hunting you know out of a blind and then a few years ago I decided I wanted to do that you know more and had a custom bow made and started practicing and um, first year I had that bow I hunted with it a little bit but I still didn't have the confidence and then uh-huh. the next season it was like alright I sold the compound that's all I had and uh, we shoot I go to these traditional archery shoots where we go shoot these 3D game targets but it's all traditional bows no compounds allowed I met a, a guy and his dad there and became good friends with him and they had this huge ranch family ranch and invited me out to go hunting nice and they're like the ranch actually they were selling it because it, they kind of had a fam- some family differences and they'd been in their family like 50 years and it was too big it was like 6,000 acres and they just it was time to move on and, and they take their money and buy their own place so they didn't have to deal with their family and so I get there and their ranch manager there was like James's dad had he asked the ranch manager, he goes, yeah, he goes, where's a good place for him to go sit? And um, he's like, oh, he can go sit here, here. But man, this house, they called it the house blind. They had a pasture that you could actually see out in this big field and kind of see where this feeder area was at. And in that pasture, in the these guys went to that T-Bar M tennis ranch right down the road. So when the tennis ranch wasn't, and I guess they had horseback riding there. <coughs> Sorry, in the wintertime, they would take the horses out there and they would live on that ranch. So they had this feeder, but it had these two pipe rails to keep the horses out. And I'm thinking, well, whatever, there's horses in the pasture, but this guy says go. And the ranch foreman's like, yeah, man, there's this old 10-pointer. You know, he's probably six, seven years old, 200 pounds, just, you know, really good buck in there and he kind of gave me a couple different descriptions of these bucks that could come in he's like there's one 10 pointer that's old and ready to shoot but there's one that's bigger and so first afternoon i'm sitting there and you know the deer start moving or whatnot and it's good nice 10 point comes out and i'm going well that one's nice but i don't think that's the one you know i'm just kind of sitting there and being patient and waiting and and all of a sudden, this brute of a 10-pointer just steps out. And I'm like, holy mackerel, that's the one. So I just sit there, and he comes in, but he never presents me an, op- the, an ethical uh-huh. opportunity. And I was kind of hesitant because I'm going, man, these guys invite me. It's the first time I've been out here. Like, I know these guys, but I don't really know them. 
I'm like, man, I really, I need to ask him, you know, <laughs> Shoot the if I can kill this, this deer and we get back and his dad had gotten there by that time and it's the coolest, most generous people you've ever met. And he's like, yeah, man, I, I want you, you know, do your thing. And so the next morning I get up and it's within, you know, a quarter mile. So I just walk from the house uh-huh, in blind. the dark and go get in this blind and they've got these they called them henry huts they were set up as like a hoop but they were a long tube so if i'm sitting in the back of the blind right here the front of the blinds about up you know six or eight feet in front of me Uh so you're back there and they have no clue you're in there gotcha i'm sitting there and the sun comes up and you know birds start chirping animals start moving around and next thing i know that big old buck at about 500 yards it's a big field i see i just see a big body step out i get my binoculars out it's like there he is and that place had no hunting pressure they hadn't hunted it all that season this big old buck he comes and kind of gets in the area where the feed was and at that point they're starting to kind of chase does and he comes in and he's milling around and he just it's like you know he never never gets things don't get right and he leaves and he keeps coming back and leaving he's he's the oldest most mature dominant buck in there Uh and um he just keeps running everything off running everything off and it's just like sitting there waiting you think you have the right opportunity yeah and then then he leaves oh yeah and then like i watch him do that for like over an hour you know and then all of a sudden, everything else had left. And next thing I know, this thing comes back. And he comes, and he's like 10 yards. And he's just standing there. Perfect shot opportunity. Has no clue I'm in the blind. It's like, here we go, boys. Pick that spot. Draw back. Anchor. Focus on the spot. Pull through. And that arrow just, boom, hits him perfectly behind wow. the shoulder. And he, you know hauls out of there and I can hear him like crashing the brush already and I'm freaking super pumped you know uh-huh. I sit there about 20 or 30 minutes just to make sure that you know he's yeah he's mm-hmm. a good ethical kill and get out and go back to the to the house and stuff they have there and the ranch foreman he had a little blue lacy dog that they for tracking uh-huh. and so anytime they would harvest a deer they would take the dog and just use use like work the dog like use it as work because he was training the dog so he's like do you mind if i you know work my dog and it helps us find the deer and I'm like no no problem so we get out and he just those dogs have a tracking collar on them so you can kind of see where they go and he kicks that dog out and that dog goes right to the spot where the deer was standing and he does his thing and it just takes off and we're kind of walking through the brush, and like two seconds later, the dog's bait up. Wow. We walk over there, and this thing is just, oh, man. And That's from that crazy. point, that point on, I was hooked. So I've harvested that buck, an axis spike, three other bucks, two does, three hogs, and probably I've harvested 15 animals with a traditional bow. Have you? Have you? I heard? meant to bring it with me because I wanted to. Oh damn! You know, I'll be show able to tell you, you that another time. Have you heard about the Comanche Indians here 
on like Texas, North Texas, how they how good they were with their bows. Oh yeah. They would yeah. shoot they would hold multiple bows in their hands and be able to shoot off ten arrows and fire off the last arrow before the first one even hit the ground. Yeah, I've heard of stuff like that. Crazy. And they would run full gallop on a horse. Yep. Lean over the side of the body of the horse, look under the neck of the horse, and be able to shoot arrows from under the neck at full gallop. Yeah, that's how they would do with the buffalo. Yeah, know? it's crazy. So have you, um, you've gone uh, um, public lands hunting. Yes. Where have you gone? And have you Colorado made, made any kills yet or no? No, we've gotten close, but still in the learning yeah. curve of that. How many times have you gone out to public lands? Three, three years in a row. And nothing? No, the first year we went, we moved around different areas and kind of learn you know how to find elk sign and how to look at the different vegetation where they're eating and figuring out where they want to be and then man those elk they move around so much it's like they can be in one spot one day and three miles the next day so it's just so much so much harder than hunting here you know you drive through a neighborhood here and you see 50 deer, like the animals are mm-hmm. real concentrated. You can go out there and walk five miles and not see one deer, mm-hmm. one elk. It's just... So when's the next trip? Yeah. Oh, man. Hopefully this year. <laughs> Colorado again? Yeah, hope so. That's... I'm hoping I get to pull it off. So I've actually... Me and old Scott Carter, oh. we've been talking about putting something together. Does think, he bow hunt? Oh, yeah. He's a really? bow too, yeah. That Big guy... Time. That guy's, I told him, hey, will you want to do podcast? No, I'm not interesting. I, I don't really have any interesting things. About oh, I'm going to bust his balls and make him. <laughs> yeah, you need to do a podcast with him because he's got, he's got a pretty cool, what he does yeah. with his job's interesting, you know? I know. So, but yeah, man, the second year we went, we probably saw over 100 elk. And Holy shit. I watched my, my buddy, my best friend, Jared, that I go with. He actually broke his foot getting out of the back of his truck, stepping down and at night when we were setting up camp on like the second day. And so rolled his ankle over. So he's hunting. He's a tough old old dog. And he duct taped his leg up and hunted Jesus for a few days. Christ. And so actually one of our friends that showed us and we started hunting within that area, he makes custom longbows and recurves. Uh-huh. Here in San Antonio, his name is it's Wagstaff Archery, Connor Wagstaff. Well, they had done, Connor goes to these show like shows these different archery shoots and sets up a booth to sell his mm-hmm. equipment, his bows that he makes. Well, Jared's a fabricator, so he's like, hey man, can you make me some bow racks for, you know, to hang my bows on for these uh, shows and stuff I go to? So they trade out. He builds them the racks. Yeah, Connor builds them a longbow. Well, Jared shoots a 70-pound bobbly recurve, which is 60 inches, right? So it's shorter. Well, these longbows are longer, so the longbow he's got like 66 inches. And so when we went on that hunt and we get up there, of course, the guy building the bows, he's always giving us a hard time. Like, you got to be shooting a Wagstaff longbow. They're the best. They're the best. And so, man, you know, Jared, we – Got an earful of it at camp for about two or three days, and Jared's finally like, "Holy, I'm okay. I'll take his stinking longbow <laughs> out." 
So this was literally his last hunt. He couldn't, like, we had to find a spot that, you know, wasn't too far to get in. And we knew that these elk had been getting pushed from public land into private. And they were moving along literally, like, quarter mile off the highway. So one afternoon, we go park on the side of the highway, walk in there. We're looking around. It's like elk highways everywhere. Well, that, that's kind of their summer bedding area you know so they're in there and you see all these hot trails but once the hunting pressure starts they move out and uh-huh. it's like okay well they're in here there's fresh rubs you know but we're looking around our, it's like man there's no place like how are we going to set up every time mm-hmm. we sit and set up we're like this isn't going to work so we kept moving up higher and we get to this field that's got this undergrowth that you can tell where the elk might want to get in there and feed and you can kind of see out and you can see the brush land where the private land is at, all right? And we're kind of looking around, and I look over, and there's this big mound of dirt that just happens to be there. That's probably 10 foot off the ground, a little bit higher than the ceiling, you know? And it's got some dead trees and trees all around it. And I look at him, I was like, let's get on top of that. That's our vantage point. Uh-huh. So we climb up there. He's like, all right, man. You got the right side. I tell him, you got the left side. I got the right side. I kneel down. He kneels down. We get our stuff, get arrows knocked, and we're just, dude, our confidence is pretty low. <laughs> By that point, just has got a broke leg. You know, we're, this whole public land thing is a million times harder than any hunting we've ever done. Literally, we're there five minutes, and he's I'm kind of watching my side, and I'm glassing to see if we see anything, and He's like, he nudges me. He's like, this freaking beautiful five by five bull just steps out. The wind's blowing in our face. And it's like he's on a stream. Just comes walking towards, hits the base of that hill, turns broadside, perfect 25 yard shot. He's kneeling down. Well, he's used to shooting a 60 inch bow. He's got the long bow, not even thinking about it draws back and he's you know shooting down at an angle and i'm thinking he releases it looks like the like just perfect shot was limped hits the ground and that arrow just goes bull runs off so it was short short yeah damn yeah so it was like ah and then he ended up going home because of what you know his injury he just couldn't couldn't do it anymore i mean he was just worn out and so we have this other spot that's actually on the New Mexico, right on the New Mexico border, and it's a pocket. A lot of guys don't want to hunt because they're afraid of the border. The highway's right there, and they don't think anything's in there. Well, those elk move in and out of New Mexico. They don't know the border. Yeah. So New Mexico's got bigger bulls because it's all draw hunting, and it's harder to get drawn, so there's way less hunting pressure. Uh, but there's more quantity of elk in Colorado so they move they migrate down into that lower country as it gets colder so they allow you to kill more elk in Colorado because there's more of them (coughs) so the guy that we've been hunting with he had located these elk that were coming out of New Mexico and coming down into this they call them parks meadows basically Uh and these guys, him and his dad, this dude, he's so out of shape. Like, oh. <laughs> he's got to be like 260, you know. And his dad, dude, I'm not kidding you. His dad 
I remember his dad sitting there at camp bragging about that he had lost 60 pounds for that hunt, but he was still like 325. Jesus. He's like, man, I'm going to lose another 100 pounds for next year. And, I mean, I give it to the guy. He tries, but we've got this spot where we park in this parking lot. It's like a parking lot area. And the, there's a Cumbers Pass Railroad that goes from Chama, New Mexico, all the way to Antonito and goes through. Well, there's the we park in this parking lot thing. It's it's like an old, I don't even know what it is. It's like a lumber yard, old lumber yard thing. The train comes through, and there's like a little deal where you can pull in and see history. Uh-huh. And that's a spot where we use our cell phones because that's only spot we've got service. Well, we park there. And then we walk a mile down that train track because it, the way the highway runs, people don't realize how much land there is in between there. Mm. And so we use that train track. We walk down that train track and then hike over like three, you know, mountains, hills through these valleys where these elk are at. Well, you know, my buddy's gone. He's gone home. And at that this early second year hunting up there, I don't have the confidence of just going in by myself because I don't want to get break my leg and be stuck out there. Yeah. So we we're hunting together. Well, we get there that afternoon. We park. You know, I've been doing CrossFit for two years at that point. That's the whole reason I started CrossFit was to go mm-hmm. elk hunting. So I'm in shape. I'm ready to rock. You know, and we get fifty yards, hundred yards down that train track, and his dad's just bent over like. Like dying, dying, and I'm going. Uh, we're on flat ground. <laughs> well, somehow we get back in there and get set up in this location, and all these elk come in, and we get down and have about a 320 bull come out of New Mexico with three little satellite bulls, and they're standing like 90 yards out in this meadow, and never would come any closer. But mm. and we're hunting with traditional bows, so we aren't slinging arrows at 100 yards like the yeah. we, like the wheelie boys are and then we go in there the next evening it's like alright you're leaving your dad at camp not, <laughs> dude li- literally that night we come out of there and it gets dark and there's a bear that kind of lives in between and we run it like we know this bear's in there and we're just dude I got I got anxiety just not from the bear but like having to walk so slow just being ready to go to the truck and i'm not kidding you there the guys are like go ahead go to the truck if you want to and just wait for us i'm like okay i get back to the truck and an hour later they come back so the next day i'm like dude daddy's got to stay at camp uh-huh. we go back in there kind of get set up same scenario <clears throat> the elk come in but we never get close enough but that guy he smells like dirty socks and he's such a stinky guy like you don't want to hunt with him because you know you're gonna get winded who is this guy his name's connor no no you don't say his name but like but who is he he's a guy that builds a custom longbow oh gotcha yeah wagstaff archery so builds a great bow but he's he's you know so what's the what's the next trip you gotta let me know because alejandro has a bow and, I, and Alejandro bow hunts. I have a bow, but I gotta I gotta start practicing. So yeah, man. So this last year it was so funny. We were sitting around, you know. So back up second season, the season yeah. that the dad he's like, 
I'm going to lose 100 pounds for next year. Well, they show up. They show up last year, which is next year. Uh-huh. I think he had gained 100 pounds. <laughs> and the funniest thing ever, man, you know, you go up there and you take all your food. And I'll never forget, we, we, the running joke is Cheez-Its because I don't eat junk food yeah. most of the time. But when you go to hunting camp, you You just take, pig out. Yeah, you pig out. And so I love Cheez-Its. So we've, I take like two of those one-pound family-sized boxes of Cheez-Its. Like that's my go-to snack. And those two big boys love Cheez-Its. And I'll never forget getting back one evening. We're waiting for his son to get back from his hunt. We're heating up our dinner. And he's run out of chips and everything else by that point. But he's got Cheez-Its left. And this dude pours a bowl full of Cheez-Its, covers it in paste piccani sauce, and then he mixes it up. And he's sitting here trying to tell me, how to get in there and elk hunt as he's shoveling <laughs> Cheez-Its and Picani sauce down his gut, you know. And so, at this point, we've, uh, we're going to go, we're going a different direction. I'm not, I'm going with guys that are in shape, not, yeah, yeah. not guys that I'm going to be the one packing their elk out. I need guys that can help me pack one out too. So. That's rad. That's so cool though. Public land hunting is legit. I think that's obviously, public yeah. land hunting with a, with a recurve like you're using is definitely up it's, for one. The, the next thing would be trying to kill a, a buck with spear. a spear. Yeah, a spear. Or, man, I've seen this Tim Wells guy shooting. Uh, I watched him on YouTube shoot a black bear with a cold steel big board blowgun. Wow. Yeah. So look up Tim Wells, okay, man. Okay, I'll check it out. He shoots warthogs. He shoots all kinds of stuff Damn, with a blowgun. that's blow crazy. So. But I got to end this. Yeah, me too. Involved. I got to get back to work. But cool, cool. Well, thank you for coming by. I think we're a two-hour podcast. Close. Is this the longest one you have? I don't or? know. It depends. Greg's was like two hours and something. Well, tell me this. Out of all the podcasts you've done, has mine been a little more interesting than some oh, of the sure, others? Oh, for sure. For sure. The fact that you're a specialist in a field helps because, you know, Greg's a specialist when it comes yeah, to surgery. Yeah, absolutely. And his was fascinating. I bet. I bet. But I need to, to people, listen to that. Yeah, talking to people who are specialists in anything, it's, it makes it easier for me because um, I am able to pull information. Yeah, and you're and you're like, educating yourself. Oh, for sure. You know? That's so, the goal. Like you said, you know, when you, we have conversations in the box, you're just scratching the surface. Yeah. You probably thought I was just some dumb redneck from Bull ah, No way, man. <laughs> you were always interesting. So, But thanks again. All right, man. I Hopefully appreciate it. this again. Hell yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you all for checking this one out. Um, so I forgot to ask him during the podcast, but if you guys need landscaping work, he is a landscape designer ryan owens and his website is rolandscape.com so r-o-l-a-n-d-s-c-a-p-e.com thanks again y'all